Claxby Hill. We had a very long, we made Norwegian style procession. Let's go and find her. Where are you going, Master? For a drink. Okay, you guys want anything else? Um, three butter beers and some ginger and wine, please. Six shots of giggle water. Oh, great, huh? This snake juice is basically rat poison. I've spent my whole life right here in Lackawanna County. Drink, I like it. I know, it's great, right? Another! Yeah. Wow, I can't believe we haven't been arrested for breaking into this bar. <laughs> well, I'm I mean, owning this joke. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, but I guess it is a bar that is fictitious that we made up, and this is a podcast. So at worst, we would be caught for a cybercrime. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> I know, I, but with the whole premise of this being a doctor and a lawyer walk into a bar, this honestly could not be a better time for it because bars around the country and pubs and restaurants they're they're just general, empty. General social life and right. Um, yeah. We ordered a weird before we started recording. Chris and I ordered a pizza, and it was the strangest experience of my life. Because the only option for delivery now is called a contactless delivery. And Did they like, I'm like, I'm like, what what on earth is this? And I clicked the little learn more in the Domino's app and it said that the delivery person would lay the pizza on a hot box on wherever you tell them to deliver it. And they'll step back six feet and they'll watch you as you pick up the pizza and as soon as you have stepped back six feet, then they will grab the hot box and they will leave. And that's exactly what happened. And it was the strangest thing I've experienced in a long time. Uh, have you ever done geocaching? Um, I know what it is. Kristen and, Mar- and our good friend Marie Dennison have done it, but I have never done it. When you initially did it, when you initially described it, I thought you were talking about like they were going to like hide it on the side of a mountain or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's weird. That's weird. I've, it was strange. I've actually, I've actually thought about um, seeing if I could become a become a part time driver here soon. Um, really? Yeah, part time driver with work and stuff slowing down. You know, you know who who's not slowing down? Pizza places. No, not at all. <laughs> but and even then, abs- even then, with me, and you would think global pandemic who is guaranteed a job like if you just had to throw off the top of your head who is guaranteed a job in a global pandemic uh doctors and uh mechanics no like outpatient clinics are drying up because i i don't see i don't see the sickest of the sick because I'm in an outpatient clinic, I see somebody who I'm trying to taper their blood pressure medicine to get their blood pressure under control. I do dietary counseling. I do um, just general health and wellness. And all of those visits are, they've all been canceled. They've all been rescheduled because people are not, well, and rightfully so. I mean, this social distancing is going to flatten this curve, but mm-hmm. people are being told only leave your home if it's an if you are going for food, 
or if it's an absolute emergency. And the majority of the mm-hmm. visits I do are not emergencies. Um, luckily, I, I mean, I work for a fantastic organization, but the hospital that I used to work for just recently laid off 300 employees. It's, I mean, this is this is bonkers. This, I mean, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This, I mean, so needless to say, let's it's everybody. Let's stay safe, y'all. Yeah. Um, let's we we're in this together. Um, we will get through this, and, and whenever. And, and this, frankly, <laughs> one of the reasons why we're doing this is just to blow off uh, some steam. To blow off steam, to talk about things that we love, and honestly, to give people a bit of an escape. Yeah, happy, I positive mean, stuff. Yeah, we're huge you, nerds. You and all we, heard how much I gushed about DuckTales. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little disturbing for a 28-year-old man. <laughs> well, this episode is its the sequel of sorts to the first episode yes. of our podcast. So but I think we... this is also the sequel to our podcast. Yes. So what so, do you think we should talk about today? Um, I think we should talk about top five with an insane top five reboots with an insane number of honorable mentions. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that earlier. What did you say? You wanted like two to four honorable mentions? Yes. And we'll... I'll just shorten it out. Basically, my honorable mentions are we're going to dedicate an episode to these after a while, after a while. So we're just going to throw these off the table. OK. Um, and so Star Wars, I'm the Star Wars guy. Everybody who knows me knows that. Um, um, yes. I can't pick one Star Wars movie. It's like <laughs> picking them on your favorite children. <laughs> like, I can't just pick one Star Wars movie or anything like that. So Star, there will be a Star Wars show, and it will be loud, aggressive, and epic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will agree with and, two of those descriptors. Two of the three. And <laughs> we'll, then, leave, we'll leave it to the imagination of which. And then um, the Avengers movies, because I feel like Avengers is just it's unfair to other movies to have Avengers the, movies the on the Avengers list. Avengers is right now is kind of like a television show. It's this. It was we saw the end game was the season finale. Right. It's like if, <laughs> if there was a television show and each episode was like two and a half hours long. I call it the season finale of my college life. Uh, OK, OK. Yeah, yeah. Beca- because frankly, like it went from when I was in high school to like after law school. Dang. Yeah. No, I guess um, my wife and I saw Iron Man two, uh, right before the end of our freshman year. Oh my gosh! I saw Iron Man two as a movie gallery. No, 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 no. Sorry, not Iron Man two. Iron Man, like the 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 I- OG Iron Man. I saw Iron Man. I did not see them in theaters. I saw Iron Man and Iron Man 2 as movie gallery rentals. Oh, my gosh. Movie <laughs> gallery. Um, in my hometown, they're still on the square where the movie gallery used to be. There's still the Lurie, um, the L-L-E-R-Y, in, like, one of the tabs that are still up there. <laughs> where I used to live in Somerset, uh, they still have a blockbuster pole. Like the poll for Blockbuster is still up with the That's sign. Amazing. 
<laughs> I think the people who own the building now are just like reluctant to take it down. So, um, you you had several honorable mentions. Yes. One was Star Wars. The other was Avengers. Avengers. And then, okay. And then um, Harry Potter, with a shout out to my boy Goblet of Fire the book. Um, okay. And Order of the Phoenix, uh, Sorcerer's Stone the movie. I've I I always said this the Order of the Phoenix was my favorite movie, but then I've rewatched Sorcerer's Stone and I just love it. I've, gotcha. I've grown a new fondness for it. Like I, I then, know, that, I know that you are saving Harry Potter for the "quote unquote" Harry Potter episode, but I'm I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I am going to figure out a way to work it into every single episode that we record. Well, I I just threw in Star Wars in every single episode. So. Oh, I know, and, and it's <laughs> it's unavoidable. I mean, even right now, uh, oh, I guess this is an audio medium, but I've got a, a Harry Potter sweatshirt on. <laughs> It's I I did a audit of my wardrobe recently, and I mean I had like five or six button up shirts, and uh, scrubs, and then the rest of my shirts were all Harry Potter themed. <laughs> it's I've just I've I, come to I've come to own it. I I do not have as many Star Wars shorts as I like. I I don't. Yeah, well um, we'll have to remedy that. So your honorable mentions, Star Wars, Avengers, Harry Potter. You said two to four. Is there a fourth? Um, uh, we'll say James Bond. You know, just ah, okay. James Bond. You, you talked Casino. a lot about James Bond in the last episode. Casino Royale is the best. Gotcha. Even though okay. it's technically slightly a reboot. But, um, but yeah, those, those are kind of my honorable mentions. The big franchises that we can dedicate full episodes to. Oh, gosh, yeah. So yeah. How, how is your list arranged? Is number five, like, like five to one, one being the best? Uh, five to one, one being the best. Okay. Or at least well, being, I, being the most memorable in terms of. I, I like I for me, this is my list for me. I'm not judging the objective quality of the movies. It's just me this is this is these are the movies that i i find most memorable because at the end of the day you will come to find that i hold some fairly controversial opinions (laughs) about certain (laughs) movies (laughs) spoilers but yeah but this is like the impact that these movies had on me and where i stand so i'm just going to get ahead and get started with spider-man far from home one of the spider you have picked a Spider-Man 2, you would say? I I have picked a Spider-Man 2. <laughs> what? A, I I mean, we honestly did not plan this, but my number 5 is Spider-Man 2, um the Tobey Maguire movie. So, I'm going to let you that, go first. Go. All right. Far from Home, the epilogue to the Tobey Maguire, Sp- not the Tobey Maguire, the Tom Holland Spider-Man really felt like the kid was coming into his own um it was such a solid movie jake gyllenhaal as mysterio oh even like, though, uh, uh, that twist where everything was done everything was fake mm-hmm. oh wait spoilers maybe uh, oh spoilers uh, about I'm gonna, like i'm gonna just <laughs> just just like, assume like when we open our mouths just assume s- Snape killed Dumbledore. Just no, the... no, no! I knew you were going there. No. 
Okay. So, anyways, far from home, I knew Mysterio was the bad guy, like because I have a friend that I think is the reincarnation of Stanley, <laughs> and so anything Marvel, any bit of Marvel information that I need to know, I get from him. Mm-hmm. And so I knew Mysterio's bad guy. Of course, I remember the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. Not as much as I wish I would like. I'm actually going to revisit that on Disney Plus. Okay. Um, but I knew Mysterio was a villain. One of my favorite podcasters was just like I like was desperate to want Mysterio as the villain. Uh, Mysterio as a villain. I think that Marvel Studios could do him well. And they did. Jake Gyllenhaal, just inspired actor. I even think his opening monologue was intentionally campy and bad like his villain monologue where after he revealed everything like i i i just love it and i also love the fact that it's the first spider-man film where robert downey jr does not play an appearance in the marvel cinematic universe or at least a spider-man appearance that doesn't directly have tony stark involved yeah and it's him coming into his own there his kind of specter still haunts the this film (laughs) but he's very much coming into his own he very much is you know he's becoming spider-man here because while i think it's the way they brought him in was brilliant i also think that you know for a lot of longtime fans they're like well he's just iron boy he's not spider-man Um, I don't have a problem with that, but I see why people do. No, I do, but I think it it fits. Though, so, because I mean, Peter Parker was always known the... for his his like tech savviness and his tech prowess, and having him being the protege of a like genius inventor tech person. It, like it the, fits within the, the context Elon of the Musk of the MCU. It fits within the Marvel, the context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because in prior Spider-Man appearances, we had Spider-Man by himself. Yeah. And so, like, you know, he couldn't Iron Man couldn't show up in the Tobey Maguire and the Andrew Garfield films. And so with him being introduced into this larger world, it fits. It absolutely works. But I like seeing Tom Holland, who is the best Spider-Man just no i would completely agree I, I, did, I did not pick spider-man 2 the toby Maguire movie because necessarily of toby Maguire's portrayal of well i mean a little bit about his portrayal of, of spider-man but um i i picked toby Maguire's spider-man 2 just for the sheer i would almost say exponential jump in quality and action in storytelling from spider-man one to two in my opinion spider-man two so i guess we're just going to move on to your um that we're going to move on we to can. Your, no 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 if yeah you, if, if, if you need well let, you, let's just interrupt this conversation <laughs> like like oh, okay um, yeah i no i 100 percent agree that tom holland is mm-hmm. the best on-screen Spider-Man that we have ever had because he was a believable high schooler. Yes, he is. A, he is the MCU's puppy. Like uh, exactly, it, and it's like they cast somebody who was within a year or two of an actual high schooler. Yes, and like as long as he, was, he d- 
he was in high school as when he was cast. But I mean, Toby Maguire was what, 32, 33? He's like, he was like, he's like 23, 23, 24. Oh, was it Andrew yeah. Garfield who was in his 30s? And by the time of Amazing Spider-Man 2, he was in his 30s. And, and see, and like they tried to like shoehorn them into the high school setting and they mm-hmm. they had they had angst, but they didn't have that like. I don't know, like you, like useful energy that Tom Holland had. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But for and like for Spider Man Two, the Tobey Maguire movie, the I I vividly remember having a conversation with somebody after I saw it that the action level of Spider Man Two, like the least action intense part of Spider Man Two, was like equivalent to the most action intense part of spider-man one plus we've all heard the the uncle ben story we knew that he had to die we knew with great power comes great responsibility we knew he got bit by a spider clark kent's planet blows up martha and thomas wayne fall die in an alley uncle ben dies these are the three immutable truths in (laughs) comic books i like that immutable truth yes (laughs) and so like i will stand up and oh I'm thinking about it now. I will put the train scene up there with. Yes. With the Wonder Woman No Man's Land scene. The Christopher Reeves flying into space and smiling for the camera. Um, the iconic superhero movie scenes. Just scenes. Yeah. Scenes. And like. When I watched Home- Homecoming came out the same year as Wonder Woman and I almost felt sorry for Tom Holland, like because <laughs> Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman was so good. <laughs> like, yeah, um, but just like that, that iconic train scene, that iconic, like in all of the people that were just like, we won't tell a soul. Will that ever happen in real life if something like that happened in real life? But just especially in a post 9-11 world where we all just needed to rally around hope like rally around hope and that's why spider-man i think that first spider-man movie took off because it was just america america and hope like (laughs) (laughs) he he would very often (laughs) land in front of an american flag (laughs) oh and you know that that uh, deleted trade that that commercial where he had the webs, the webs in between the World Trade Center. Do you remember that? No, like there I don't. was a there there was a commercial that was pulled for obvious reasons after nine eleven, where Spider Man like introduced himself in the world by having his webs across the two twin towers. Oh, like that was part of the marketing campaign for Spider Man one. Um, and then 9-11 happened and they had to pull and digitally remove the World Trade Center from the movie. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dang. Okay. Uh, uh, and so it was just like that. Those movies were America and hope. And just to have a comics realistic superhero on the screen. Yeah. Like as close as we get. God love Brian Singer and God love Hugh, Hugh Jackman. But if Brian Singer did the Spider-Man movies <laughs> like he did the X-Men movies, we would have had Tobey Maguire in a leather jacket before Spider-Man three. <laughs> before his uh, like, uh, before his descent into madness. Like and Sam Raimi did like 
I, I feel so bad for Sam Raimi after what happened with Spider-Man 3, because that was studio interference. Wait, how so? So Sam Raimi didn't want Venom. Like, he didn't want Venom. He wanted it to be Sandman to kind of fill out that uh, Killing Uncle Ben trilogy. Like, coming to terms and closure with Uncle Ben. and uh, With Uncle Ben and all of that. It was going to be the Hobgoblin and the Sandman. And then Venom was just kind of thrown in by studio interference. Wait, the killing of... Oh, didn't they... Did they, like, retcon... The Sandman as the guy yeah. that killed Uncle Ben. Yes. Sandman was supposed to was like the guy kind of responsible for killing Uncle Ben. Oh, because it was a different actor, wasn't yeah. it? I, I honestly do not remember. <laughs> I saw that movie once and vowed to never see <laughs> it, it again. Was enough. It was enough. Yeah, it was enough. Like, it, as we said earlier, but if Brian Singer had had his hands on it, Tobey Maguire would have had that <laughs> that that emo jacket much, much earlier. <laughs> OK, that, that uh, makes a lot more sense. There's been some several other incidences of studio interference where. It's it just, was the same with. The Amazing Spider-Man, too, because they were like they were like gung ho on getting the sinister sinister six. In. Well, that one that but, one had three different villains in it too, didn't it? Uh huh. I, th- I I hope that uh, and it was kind of funny that in Spider Man Far From Home, there were technically three different villains at least on its face. The Elementals. Yeah. Uh, the. I I think that was a subtle kind of ploy to be like, oh, (laughs) three different villains doesn't work. Don't try it. (laughs) Ooh, that's that's deep. That's meta. I like it. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Because Amazing Spider-Man 2, I mean, if we're going to finish out this whole Spider-Man 2, the trilogy of Spider-Man 2s that exist. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Is that. I I would not watch. Did you watch the uh, first Andrew Garfield? I didn't watch either of them. Okay, I wouldn't until there's at least some sort of indication that the story will continue in some way. As in like a live action into the Spider-Verse. Live action into the Spider-Verse or heck, even a comic. If Marvel just wanted to roll with a comic. I'm not going to read the comic. I'm going to I'm going to be honest. Yeah, but and that's and that's fair, but it very much ends on the we're going to open this whole universe, whether you want us to or not. <laughs> yeah, there was talks of an Aunt May film. What? An Aunt May. Wait a second. Film. Was it was Sally Fields? Did she play Aunt May in those movies? Sa- Sally Fields played Aunt May in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. That's kind of amazing. But like I I had this idea of like an Aunt May origin story where like Uncle Ben was like some sort of like Latin American operative, like communist (laughs) operative and was in like witness protection program (laughs) and fell in love with, you know, the American Bell. You know, that's that's the Aunt May origin story. (laughs) Like that they like that Aunt May had a past. Yeah. 
<laughs> the chi scene thing. Basically forced, basically forced Gup, but this time Sally Fields plays Forrest. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to lie. That, 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 took, that took me a minute. <laughs> It literally just came to me that, oh, my gosh, Sally Fields plays Forrest Gump's mom. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and yeah, it, it was it, it, there was just that talks about it. And like I started brain because I was in law school at the time and my I was slowly just descending into <laughs> madness and desperate for escape. Des desperate for escapes. Um, and I started coming up concocting, you know, Aunt May origin oh, no. story ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. Now granted with Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, I could probably dig it. She's like, that's an interesting take on Aunt May. Like I, they've always portrayed Aunt May as some sort of like like elderly, like has the weird strawberry candies that nobody ever knows where they came from, but has those in her purse. <laughs> the Werther's that get increasingly hairy. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it, it, Aunt May's always been that. And uh, do they ever, I never do that. I ne I got to ask my, com my Marvel guru, like where, like, ri like Richard Parker, or not not Richard Parker, but where like what is the relationship between Aunt May and Uncle Ben and Peter's actual parents? Like is because I don't is the dad a brother to one of his parents or is she? Yeah. Oh, OK, OK. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that there was like this big conspiracy about um, what happened to um, Peter's parents that they were going into with the Amazing Spider-Verse or the Amazing the Amazing Spider-Man films and. I just feel ultimately I just feel so bad for Andrew Garfield because mm. Andrew Garfield loved playing Spider-Man. Really? Because if there's one thing about those movies, I like Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone mm -hmm. yep. um, gave a 110 percent to that performance. And since you're not going to see it, I'm just going to go ahead. Spoilers alert, everybody, for a movie that's came out six years ago as part of a defunct cinematic universe. Um, they killed Gwen Stacy. Oh, I know. In that movie. And if they did one thing right in that movie was the death of Gwen Stacy. Like my heart just sort of like sank. Mm. Oh, because this in the comics, the story of the death of Gwen Stacy, Peter Parker is haunted by the thought of what it was it. The fall that killed her or the rebound of me trying to catch her with my webs that killed her. Mm, sort of like a, a Dumbledore, like, was it this was it a spell I cast that killed Ariana? Was it? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, OK, OK. Did did he cast uh -huh. the blow? Did he deflect the blow or deflect the blow into? Yeah, OK. And that's and that was the death of Gwen Stacy and Sony did it perfect. Okay. Like they they did that death perfect. And when she was falling down that clock tower, basically in a comics accurate portrayal, I'm just like, no, no, <laughs> no. I know what's coming. I and know like, what's th those, coming. That those two had such great chemistry together. Yeah. 
those two had such great chemistry together, and he works as Spider-Man, and I hope in some way they could honor that in the in the, in the years going forward. Do you think he'd come back as for a Spider-Verse? Maybe. I mean, could we live in a world where Spider-Man 3 gives Andrew Garfield a Spider-Man 3, <laughs> redeems Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 3, and gives Tom Holland a Spider-Man 3? Oh, I don't think it'll happen in Spider-Man 3. But, uh, like, Tom Holland is uh, two more standalone Spider-Man movies, I think that's what his contract was, and another team-up movie. Uh, it's one more Spider-Man movie and one more MCU movie. Oh. That's it. He only has two films. Well, I mean... In this contract. In this contract. But I think what I think what's going to happen is. Is that Tom Holland, I, uh, Tom Holland is going to get launched into the multiverse and then Sony has Tom Holland all to themselves, all to himself. For the Venoms, for the Morbius, for the. For those films. Yeah. You know, after Spider-Man 3 or after Doctor Strange into the multiverse, Tom Holland just gets cut off from everyone else. I hope not. I mean, I, I love the little like scrappy and he's like the puppy of, of the Avengers. Oh, Tom Holland is a human. Puppy. Uh, he's, a, like, he's a human puppy to begin with. But um, it's <laughs> it's it's so I, I feel like he's almost like a. Harry Potter character to the Avengers, like how we learned about Harry's ultimate, his, his big wide world through the, like the bright eyes of a, a young mm-hmm. kid who had never experienced any of that before. And I, f- I feel like it's how most of us would react if we were like, Hey, you're a, uh, you're Captain America. Oh, Iron Man, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Stark. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm in my, I, I'm in my 30s. You're in your late 20s. Like that's still have. Oh, OK, Mr. Stark. OK, yeah, we'd react the same way. <laughs> yes, we would. Yes, 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 we absolutely would. But ultimately, uh, if, if there is this is going to be a weird tie in, but this <laughs> oh, is me no. putting on my lawyer hat for a minute. OK, but if there, if there's one thing that the three Fifty Shades of Grey films taught me is that contract law works for the either for the good or ill of mankind. <laughs> and so what I would give to be to be able to get my hands on get get my hands on the Sony Disney contract. Mm. And just to be able to get my hands on the Sony Disney contracts and just see what's in there and just dissect it. Yeah, just just dissect it. And it's like, you know, like literally from what I from what I've gathered, especially with the whole like Hawkeye Scarlet Witch, like shared thing whenever it was the uh, the Fox deal. Because wait, uh, Hawkeye Scott, not Hawkeye, but uh, Quicksilver. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because Apparently, because Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch were like equally X-Men and equally Avengers, they had sort of a shared custody arrangement with them. (laughs) Marvel just couldn't call them mutants. What what do they call them? Like the enhanced? uh, Yeah, or like the specials. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And and they, they had like this like shared custody arrangement with them. And apparently they have like character by character like breakdown as to who gets what hmm. there, there was like a deal there's like a deal for deadpool that deadpool got negasonic teenage warhead which is 
an awesome name. Yeah, it really for is. Ego the, <laughs> for Ego the Living Planet. Lawyers litigated that. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyers negotiated that. Uh, what if you were like a, a an IP litigation lawyer? Uh, unfortunately, Kentucky doesn't have that much. <laughs> that much inter- <laughs> intellectual property. Well, no, not that not that would mean not that much litigatable intellectual property ah, yeah. to make livings off of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's it is, and, it is interesting, though, that Spider-Man 2 was our, the number five on both of our lists. Yes, yes. So I am going to move to number four. OK. Now, this is like, I believe, the seventh in a series. But because I haven't seen. Like all of these films, I've only seen a couple of these films. It's not part of the grand. Poobah, you know, franchise that I put in my honorable mentions. Okay. so this this goes to Star Trek First Contact. Okay, this is going to be interesting. I haven't seen this movie. Okay, so. I believe it is free on Pluto TV. Okay. This this podcast was uh, not brought to you by Pluto TV, but we're going to give you ideas. Um, and it, it's free on Pluto TV. And honestly, I only saw this movie a couple years ago. But I was just absolutely floored in how much I loved it. Like, go on. It just it just kind of blew my mind. First off, um, how much of a, how much Trek have you seen? I mean, I I, I know enough to. Uh, I'd say in the entire lexicon, I've probably seen the thirty percent, and that's television and movies. Um, yeah. I know enough to track with conversation and to further conversation along. So, go ahead. So we could agree that with the original series, it's a little. Uh, Shall we say campy? I mean, can't be by today's standards. Can't be by. Yes, very much can't be by very much can't be by today's standards. But uh, John Stewart actually had a very good point when I I'll, I'll remember when uh, Star Trek Into Darkness came out, he was interviewing J.J. Abrams and, you know, he, Stewart was like, you know, that's the thing I love about the charm of Star Trek is it's like you see the campy aliens, you see the bad prosthetics, the very clear soundstage set, and they are just like, oh, that's fun, that's cute, and then you start to think and go, racism is bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a franchise that with with a campy premise, with the technology that they had at the time, given the given eras. It's there was a lot of layers to it. Oh, yeah. And it it, it, I mean, it, it, it it pushed boundaries too. it pushed boundaries. I mean, it was the first interracial interracial on screen kiss. Yeah. Um, but because of that, I would not call a uh, William Shatner a thespian <laughs> of the uh, <laughs> highest caliber. But I would call Sir Patrick Stewart. Stuart Patrick Stewart is a like. Star Trek does not deserve Sir Patrick Stewart. 
Like, I'm just going to stay straight up. Given, man, given some of his performances that I, I'm surprised he he must have he must have loved the character of Jean-Luc Picard to stay with it that long. Yes, yes. And if you go in and watch Picard there, the new the new Picard series, mm-hmm. it's such an interesting and different take. It's flawed. There's a lot of flaws to it, but I mean, I'm excited to see where they go with it. Yeah. From this point on, there's three seasons planned. They just wrapped their third season. The they first just, season. Oh, they just wrapped their... Okay, okay. Their first season. Um, but Star Trek First Contact, basic premise for those of you who haven't seen it, is... So, in the show, Jean-Luc Picard gets assimilated by the Borg. He becomes the locutus of Borg, a collective hive, this collective hive mind of half-organic, half-technological beings, cybernetic beings, that... All individuality, all sense of individual identity is stripped away from them. And they become these just basically, you know, their their famous line are, we are the Borg. Your technological and, and biological distinctiveness will be assimilated into our own. Resistance is futile. And it's this intimidating, this intimidating race because it's this hive mind. How do you fight something that you don't know where its head is? Because the whole thing is their is the whole thing is their head, and um, in the movie, the Borg gets defeated in the twenty fourth century by the Federation, and so they go back in time to assimilate Earth before they have con- first contact with other alien races, and so, oh. and so, um. They have to go back in time. And the thing that I like about Star Trek, because I'm not the biggest Star Trek fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of an ironic Star Trek fan. Like, I like the Star Trek that challenges its own premises. That at least that challenges its own premises, because the idea of Star Trek is and we're just uh, we're just going to have to be blunt. Gene Roddenberry was a communist. The idea of Star Trek was this we're going to live in this golden post profit, post capitalism, ideal, utopic society where we've moved past conflict or poverty, disease or war. And we all just live in harmony with one another. I fundamentally disagree that that will ever happen. (laughs) (laughs) That is just not within my worldview. And so what interests me about Star Trek is when they, they, they pick at those ideals like all the stories post Gene Roddenberry that pick at those ideals and one makes them fight for them. Like makes challenges them, makes them fight for them, makes them live up to their ideals and basically show that they're still human in the way that we understand humanity. Okay. No, I, I see what you mean. And so, and so, and also like it's those stories, you know, first contact is, humanity's first contact with Vulcan. It's basically a world similar to ours, you know, encountering this larger race and becoming the, the humanity that we see in the 24th century in proper Star Trek. Yeah. They, they go back the day before mankind, they go back in time the day before mankind has first contact with Vulcan and John Luke Picard and all of them, they're like totally geeking out. 
Like, it's the equivalent of them meeting, for me, Alexander Hamilton, James <laughs> Madison, <laughs> George Washington. <laughs> that, that's what it was like for them to go back and see this guy who was responsible for essentially uniting Earth and creating this galactic federation. I'm not going to lie. At at some points with your obsession of Hamilton and basically history in general, I have seriously considered hiring um, like an Alexander Hamilton impersonator um, to come to like one of your birthday parties. Uh, almost like <laughs> Jim hired a Ben Franklin impersonator to come <laughs> at, uh, when he was told to hire a male stripper for the, for the women's thing. <laughs> <laughs> But it, so, it would have to be with the right company. Well, long story short, because you haven't seen the film and I'm monologuing. Okay. Is that <laughs> long story short, Sir Patrick, there is a moment there. And this kind of wraps into my larger point about them having to fight for their ideals mm -hmm. where Patrick Stewart, he gets he lures the Borg into the holodeck creates a 1950s hollow like 1950s holographic story where you know basically him and a girl from the 20th the the 21st century are dancing in like a 1930s style detective story okay um and like during like a prohibition era detective story then Picard takes a machine a Tommy gun from one of the from one of the uh, holograms and starts mowing down and it starts mowing down the Borg with a machine gun made of light, essentially. <laughs> this is a scene that you never knew that you needed in your life <laughs> until it happened, right? And it was and he just had this vengeance in his eyes because he was assimilated from by the Borg. He lost his humanity. He lost his identity. Mm. And, you know. After the fact, he's talking to this 21st century woman and was like, you know, we in the 24th century have moved past violence, moved past, you know, moved past these petty human notions that you in the 21st century deal with. And she just looks at him and says, please, <laughs> I saw what you did. You literally just mowed them down with like hate and murder in your eyes. All right, Captain Ahab. Let's go find your whale. <laughs> and and basically forces Picard to admit that, yeah, he he wants to kill them for what they did and accept his own violent humanity impulses. And the performance that Patrick Stewart gives, if that did not win an Oscar, it should have. <laughs> oh, I mean, even if it's just now. Uh, wasn't Black Panther the first superhero movie to be nominated for Best Picture? Yes. Like, it's taken until the 21st century for us to acknowledge anything science fiction, superhero, um, anything with a fandom in order to mm -hmm. acknowledge that in the Academy. So I guarantee you he did not win an Oscar for that. And for the first time in my life... Like, I started to understand why people are missing film, because there was a warmth to it. There was a realism mm. to it. Even though even though you could tell that, they, that it was fake, there was a realism to it, like having real model ships engaging in space battles. There's a charm to it. That there was such a charm to it. There was such a warmth to it. And the score. 
<laughs> you and scores. Jerry Gold. Jerry Goldsmith score. I am going to tell you just straight up. The star. I will put the Star Trek TNG theme second only to Star Wars. That's like that's a, that's a bold music, claim. The music in that series, the music that just that main theme where you're just walking out of there going, OK, John Williams is on a pedestal. So when I say second only to Star Wars, I'm just the, the whole orchestral work of John Williams is what I mean. Like he is the gold <laughs> standard, which we all live by. But Jerry yes. Goldsmith gets dang close. He gets He's dang a, close at it. There, there's a couple of things where if you ask me, what's your favorite fill in the blank that there are i have to preface it with you know this excluded because it sits on a level all of its own i would put john williams on that level like like yeah you can't like like who's your your favorite film composer i mean like well you mean excluding john williams because he's the default right like if if we do a composer score if we do a music score we'll have to have the john williams show and then we'll have to have the others. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's like, that's OK. So Star Trek First Contact, you would do. I need to see. Is there is there like a certain like prerequisite for me to watch it or can I just. I'm familiar well, with the Borg you. like I, I haven't watched the television series that was uh, that was in the the series that pre- like came after next generation right the borg uh well yes and no but the borg came in in tng like they were introduced in tng but they became a bigger threat and a bigger thing they relied on them more in uh voyager okay so but i can i can go and watch this movie and i will send you the episodes where the three episode the episode where they introduced the borg the episode where picard gets assimilated by the borg and then the aftermath of that assimilation okay and just four episodes four episodes because that will like if you watch those four episodes and then you get and then you walk into that movie you will feel for patrick stewart you'll feel for john luke picard for everything that he went through okay done but other than that it's brilliant it's it, it, it's it's a good standalone. It's a good standalone movie. All you really need, need to know is that Jean-Luc Picard uh, just got assim- got assimilated by the Borg and now he's out for blood. <laughs> that if, if that was your only pitch to try and sell me a movie, I'd be in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I'd, I'd be in and, like it's it's basically Time travel plus Moby Dick plus Star Trek. So time travel, Moby Dick and Star Trek kind of keeping in that same line. I'm going to go into my my number four, Um, Mm -hmm. which is which is very similar and will fall right in. If you're if you're a fan of that genre, you'll appreciate this one. And that is Sister Act (laughs) 2. Well, I mean, Whoopi Goldberg is in both. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I threw this one in there um, out of uh, in honor of my wife, because this is direct sister act two are some of her like favorite movies of all time. But I 
when you want to talk about score, you want to talk about infectious music. Uh, and then in, in, uh, it, it's it's a scrappy but uplifting story as well. Um, mm-hmm. I I absolutely love that movie. I love the 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 premise behind Whoopi Goldberg's character. Like she's she's rough and tumble. She has to go into witness protection in a in a in an um goodness was in an abbey. <laughs> like can I can I just say that uh, Maggie Smith as a nun? Like I I could see her in another life being a nun. You're you're not wrong, but she had. I, I would argue that she had the same level of sass as the Mother Superior <laughs> in both of those movies as she did as Minerva McGonagall and as um. Oh, don't 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 would shoot daggers online at me at the Downton Abbey. Um, the character would you Downton call? Abbey. Yeah, I I've I've only seen like an episode of Downton Abbey. I haven't seen any. <laughs> I saw the pilot. Would you um, call? What? You said, would you call? What do you call? I'm confused. You said, would you call? Oh, sorry. Yeah, never mind. Sorry. Um, so would you call like Maggie Smith the how would you put this? Uh, she's not really a character actor. She's one of those actors that plays Maggie Smith and everything. <laughs> but we just love her for it. Yes. <laughs> it's like the modern day version of that would be Chris Pratt. Now, granted, by all accounts, and, I, and Chris Pratt will even agree with us on this. She is a superior person in every way. But it, it, Chris, uh, um, Chris Pratt is one note. But the things that he is cast in, that note is is in tune. Yes. If that makes sense. Like, it's yes. appropriate in what he's cast in. Nicolas Cage, on the mm-hmm. other hand, he is one note. It, and it it just sometimes it works and sometimes it's excruciating. But I well, would say that Maggie Smith is Maggie Smith in everything that she's yeah. in. Including, did I ever make you watch like, murder? Did I ever make you watch Murder by Death? You did a long time ago. And so Maggie, Maggie Smith is in that, and she's just as sassy as um, uh, <laughs> as the Duchess of. Is it Duchess? I think. I don't know. There's going to be some Downton Abbey fans like that are going to cl- be furious. But um, in, in the clips that I've seen of Downton Abbey and her character, she just seems like Maggie Smith drunk. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say drunk. I would say like Maggie Smith in the beginning grips of dementia when she loses her filter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, my my doctor's going to come out. Frontotemporal dementia um, is when the frontal lobe of the brain starts to atrophy the most. And that is what's responsible for your filter for considerate thought for thinking before you're speaking and so somebody who has frontotemporal dementia um loses their filter and they just say whatever is on their brain the moment it pops in there it comes out of their brain i would say i would classify that as maggie smith's character in downton abbey just from the little bit that i've seen basically all i've seen from her is memes where she has this super sassy face and she tells you like it is 
Um, well, but she's it, more of like a 1920s version of like a mean girl. Like she's a duchess. She's an aristocrat. She's never she's been pampered her whole life. She didn't understand the concept of a weekend. I mean, I could accept that, but I um, but Sister Act 2. Yeah, I was going to say, I love how our discussion of Sister Act 2 diverges into a Maggie Smith. is. We talked about ball. Nicolas Cage. We did. <laughs> Lord have mercy, we did. Okay. Um, but yes, <laughs> Sister Act 2. Um, I honestly didn't know how they would follow up Sister Act 1 because it was such an original premise. Um, mm-hmm. But having the um, the nuns overseeing the education of a school and letting um, Whoopi Goldberg's character um, interact with um, students, I mean, it definitely brought a vitality and a youthfulness to it. Um, but it's, it's just very 90s it is. It was very 90s, but it is also it's, it's also timeless in a way. The story is um, because inner city schools are, are are they need help. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, you, the stories that have come after that. You you hear of a teacher that goes into an inner city school and inspires and changes things. Um, and, and we want to rally behind that because we care about. Um, and and that and, and that's the thing I really love about the Sister Act movies is that it takes maybe it, it's a critique of religious institutions without necessarily dogging religion yes like it's a it's a critique of the sort of the stodgy cath like that stodginess of the catholic church where they're all singing gregorian chants um i would would even say it's it's a critique because i know i have a lot of um friends of the uh, like who you know attribute themselves to be catholics and I think it's it's more of a critique of the the stereotype of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. the <laughs> a lot of the like Catholic people that I know, like they want the world to know that you know they're still I mean they're human, they have sense of humors, they mm-hmm. <laughs> they they don't you know sit up on this like lofty pedestal and look down their nose at people. They do legitimately care. And they know that people make mistakes, and uh, but either way, and as as Southern Baptists and as people who grew up in a Baptist tradition, every faith has that. Oh yeah, every faith has has their unfortunate has their unfortunate stereotypes, has the bad eggs that ruin it for all of us. Yeah, and so you know, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, in those movies, they very much they show respect and give a sense of humor to them without belittling belittling nuns without belittling those sisters they 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 have they inject a sense of humor they inject a little bit of edge but there is still an incredible amount of reverence Mm -hmm. um for the the catholic institution and and just the faith in general um like Mm -hmm. it was one of the the scene especially in sister act one when the pope came to hear um the nun group sing I mean, it was it was like you were getting a like first row seat and just like something that kind of transcended time. Like this could have been happening, especially when they were harmonizing in that kind of Gregorian 
type mm-hmm. song. Like this could have been happening in the 16th century. And then they they mm-hmm. break into the more like Motown version of the song. Wanna, and wanna, yeah, I love exactly. Em. I wanna, wanna love them. I love them. Oh, I'm gonna stop you there. I'm gonna stop you there for the sake of everyone listening. I'm follow gonna, him. <laughs> no, stop. Um, but it was it was a very worthy follow up. And I would even argue that the songs and the story are even more they're more memorable than the first one. Because I like they had a lot of really been, big personalities in the students and even even some of the nuns like Sister Mary Roberts, especially they kind of come into their own um, and it's a development of their characters in addition to the students. So I'm not going to go I am, on any more about it, but it's 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 a very worthy watch if you haven't seen it. I am currently looking at my Apple Music and seeing if the soundtracks show up because it's been a while, and I at least want to listen to the soundtracks. Yeah, and you Lauren haven't. Lauren Hill, my goodness, Sister Act. There is some like weird rights issues with Sister Act. It's it's not on Apple Music. I may just have to go up and straight up buy the CDs. I would. I, have to. I would. I mean, Lauren mm-hmm. Hill's portrayal of Rita Louise Watson was phenomenal, and her voice. My goodness, like the I, the quality of the music. If, if that's the only thing that you listen to, if you listen to the soundtrack, the quality of the music jumps exponentially. Um, I mean, so yeah. Whoopi Goldberg has really owned that that part of her legacy because she has it on like a Vegas show. There's a she, sister act Vegas show. And it was on Broadway and she was a producer of the Broadway show. Okay, I, I couldn't remember if it was on Broadway as yeah, well. Yeah, it, it was on Broadway. Like, she's a producer of the Broadway show. But, yeah, Sister Act 2. That's my number four. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I always, it's been a long time since I watched them, but I always just had a, have a good time watching them. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like you said, such an original premise. It's such a, you know, fun movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's ultimately, com- it's like, comfort food. You'll sit there and you'll like you'll at least bob your head along to the music. It's great. And I love how our conversation went from like parent, like you know, commentary on religious faith to Nicolas Cage to Dame Maggie <laughs> Smith's Downton Abbey character has dementia. Like <laughs> Downton Abbey character has dementia in, in uh. this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I am going to move on to my number three. Okay. My number three is the third movie of a series that was once a trilogy and became a quadrilogy. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, you could Uh, you could you could drop the mic right there and we can (laughs) walk out of here. Introducing like, Sean Connery as Indy. Like, oh. who on this planet could be Indiana Jones's father? I mean, Sean Connery. Other like, than Sean Connery. Absolutely. Sean Connery. I mean, Tom Selleck now. Um, no. <laughs> no. 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 Tom Selleck was actually supposed to be Indy. Was supposed to be Indiana Jones. Yeah, he had a scheduling. He had a scheduling conflict with Magnum PI. Is it bad that I I love those like YouTube listicles of like like this character would have been this if it wouldn't have been for an illness or a scheduling conflict or something? Yeah, mm-hmm. 
he was supposed to be he was supposed to be Indiana Jones, except it, there was a scheduling conflict because he was in his prime with Magnum P.I. Yeah. So Indy would have had a mustache, definitely. <laughs> oh, yes. We were talking All about hail the Selleck mustache. Note. With the coronavirus epidemic, I am a physician and I work in primary care. I have had to I've, I've had some form of facial hair since residency mm-hmm. <laughs> because I went in to do an exam on a female patient who flat out refused and later told another female resident that she wasn't going to let that little boy, uh, I guess, be her doctor. So <laughs> I I tried to grow out some form of facial hair so people would assume that I wasn't 12 years old. Well, unfortunately, N95 respirators, which are the respirators that do protect you when you are in those like cr- critical exam scenarios, um, they don't mm-hmm. seal well if you have any facial hair. I've had a beard since my daughter was born, and I had to shave it off. And I did I did what everybody does who shaves a beard who has it a long time. I took progressive pictures of with different facial like facial hair, and I got to a mustache. And I couldn't stop laughing at myself. And I decided in that moment, I always knew this about mustaches in general. But unless unless you have to take out insurance on your mustache, <laughs> you should not have a mustache. <laughs> you know, like unless- the, Tom, the Tom Selleck's, the Sam Elliott's, the Chuck Norris's, there- like... There was an episode of Friends where Tom Selleck shaved his mustache. Yes, <laughs> I remember and this. And it just, oh, like it felt, the universe felt wrong. <laughs> and I love, again, <laughs> we just went on a tangent about Tom Selleck's mustache. Tom Selleck's about the Indiana mustache. Jones. <laughs> okay, continue. Indiana Jones and the, okay. the quest for peace. Or, I mean, so, the blast for <laughs> <laughs> That's the fourth one. Oh, wait, sorry. Um... So my my dad likes to uh like no matter what he always attaches some like Harry Potter and the Temple of Doom. Yeah. Like yeah, exactly. Temple of Doom is just like a default like movie like, thing. Like like protagonist and it's always the Temple of Doom. Yep. So I I watched Indiana Jones for the first time in high school with my AP European teacher. European history teacher. Like after the AP test, we would we would watch the indie films and she always refused for good reason to watch uh, Temple of Doom. We would only watch Raiders in in Last Crusade. She did this for uh, U.S. history and she did this for European history. So it, <laughs> it almost sort of became a quasi tradition. Yeah, that we would w- watch Indiana Jones. Raiders is a perfect movie. Like, just straight up, Raiders is a perfect movie. Last Crusade is a perfect movie. But the reason... But Last Crusade edges it up for me because any movie with Sean Connery in it just automatically wins by default. Yes. (laughs) Like, if there's a movie with Sean Connery and a movie without Sean Connery, the movie with Sean Connery always wins. (laughs) Like... So in my um, high school English class, we had to make movie posters for books that we Uh read during our during our class. And so we picked Fahrenheit 451. And this was in my early graphic design 
stage, I printed mm-hmm. out the, um, uh, uh, the, the, like, um, Congress shall make no law restricting free speech. Like I printed out the, is it the fourth amendment for free, free, free speech? This the is first. the doctor asking the lawyer, the first amendment. Okay. So I printed out the, I, I typed it in like a typewriter font. I stained it in like coffee and tea. I used a lighter to burn the edges and I burned into speech and we scanned that on dad's enormous scanner at that time because they hadn't <laughs> made them desktop sized and printed it out. And I, I guess this was in the age where we were high school students and um, we were in our heads. We were on SNL. Like we tried <laughs> to have that level of humor and we had Sean Connery as the burning trash can that you threw books in. because <laughs> Sean Connery could play everything. So I think even then, even in high school, I knew that adding Sean Connery in any way made a movie a far superior movie. Yes, yes. And I love the father son dynamic and the just this, you know, having like the strained relationship that they had and the reconciliation that they did, that they went through through that movie, you know, that this this archaeology, this quest nature of Indiana Jones very much came from his father, Mm -hmm. but also gave him a strained relationship with his father because of his father's obsession with the Holy Grail. Mm hmm. Um, and so I like such perfect humor, such perfect, it, it's a great story makes me want to go. Cause, um, I've been, I've been, um, using the hoopla and Libby app from the library to get just all the audiobooks. Yeah. And they're the great course. This has a course on King Arthur and I'm like going to dive into like Arthurian legends. That's so fun. Arthurian legends because there isn't a good I I think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the last great Arthurian legend movie the last great I will give you that yes as great it was was like um, Charlie um, Hunan there there was there was a King Arthur movie that came out the guy raging film yeah it lost like 300 million dollars Oh my gosh, I haven't seen it. Yeah. So. Anyway, but, um, but yeah, but yeah, like I loved those. Like I love the movies. I love again, just you know, it's that respect for religious faith that they had that they had on it, but it made it so approachable to everybody. Yeah, that this just this history, this lore, because I think as we as people who grew up in the more evangelical faith, uh, in in the more evangelical faith. I I think I've definitely felt this in my life. We kind of feel marooned from church history and marooned from kind of the historical 2000 years. We always kind of see ourselves as a little bit time after Jesus. And then the, like the last a hundred years of church development. Yeah. Because most of that is like dominated by the Catholics. Most of that is dominated by the Catholics and we grew up Baptist. Yeah. And so, you know, this whole like delving into these sort of legends and these, you know, Christian, you know, with the Arthurian stuff, Christian myths that that were there and the stuff, of the Holy Grail, Excalibur, all of that, you know, I think sort of our society needs to be a bit more grounded in that. And, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas did such an amazing job. And then 
it also got a little bit better in my mind due to a movie that came out in 2013. Okay. Frozen. What? The the indie girl's name in that movie is Elsa Donovan. A blonde-haired German girl named Elsa is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And so well, in right my then. mind, and she becomes she becomes the two-timing traitorous indie girl that, you know, has relations with both Indy and his dad. <laughs> Awkward. Um, <laughs> and so in, in my mind, as someone who hot take does not like Frozen, <laughs> does not like Frozen, El- Frozen is Nazi propaganda. Just <laughs> like oh that's, that's my head cannon. That's my head OK. <laughs> well, so in, Indiana Jones and the quest for peace. Indiana Indiana Jones. Well, I can't say Temple of Doom because there is an Indiana Jones. But there Temple is an actual Temple of Doom. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll talk about this in another time. Another hot take. I like four. I like four. I do. I oh the Kingdom it. of the Crystal Skull. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like I, I like so, four. Okay. Do you like it? I, I know. I know you said we'll get into this, but I have to ask you: Do you like it if for the escapism or for the quality of the movie? A little bit of both, because I cannot stand Temple of Doom. I I hate. I do not like that movie. Okay. Okay. I do not like that movie, and I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is an objectively better movie than Temple of Doom. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We better move, if, we better move so, on. They're going to kick us out of here. <laughs> All right. What's your number three? <laughs> um, I, I, sorry to like we and so I actually brought seven sequels because I, I had okay. assumed that we would overlap. But we're mm-hmm. in number three. And so far, our list have been entirely different. So I'm just going to work my way down the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toy Story 2. OK. OK. Mm-hmm. It okay. was a, a, in it when it comes to a sequel, it was a direct follow up to Toy Story one. And I don't think you're going to find mm-hmm. in the Toy Story lexicon one, two, three or four that one of them is a direct sequel, like considerable amounts mm-hmm. of time pass. I mean, obviously from Toy Story two to Toy Story three. And then um, I mean, Bonnie is still in Sunnyside in Toy Story four, but they don't they don't acknowledge what. Well, they they do in a way. They don't really acknowledge what came before the previous movie as much as they did in Toy Story 2. And just the way, I, I think, honestly, them taking, I don't know if Toy Story 2 was planned. I don't know if when they made Toy Story 1, the fact that there was. I don't uh, think I don't, they did. I don't, I don't know if a sequel was planned, but um, it, the thing that kind of makes me chuckle every time is when Barbie is driving down the Buzz Lightyear aisle and it said, short-sighted toy manufacturers underestimated the demand for Buzz Lightyear action figures in 1993 or 95 or whatever. That was, that was an actual fact. Nobody uh-huh. ever expected the Toy Story movies would be as successful as they were, and the, the Buzz Lightyear mm-hmm. action figures sold out. Instantly, um, and so it, to it's take like that, how. Go ahead. Oh, it's like how in the Mandalorian, like no one expected like this <laughs> high demand for for Baby Yoda merch. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I think it's 
in the way that Pixar does. They they manage to come up with a story that still rips at your heart. I was going to say tugs at your heartstrings, but that's that's being um, that's that's sugarcoating things for what Pixar does to mm-hmm. you. Um, and the backstory that they gave to Woody and the way that they uh, um, Newman shoot. What was his first name? Randy. So, Randy Newman, yes. The You've Got a Friend in Me, um, giving that song's origin as a song that Woody sang in Woody's Roundup was just genius. Oh, wow. I, oh, wow. Because it, it, it's it has like at, been... at the end of Woody's Roundup, Woody, like, gathers his, like, human friends around him. And it's like the south, like the the send off for every episode. He sings "You've Got a Friend in Me" to, you know, the the human that ultimately would be like the toy owner. Um, and yeah. that's every time I see that. And and the new characters that they introduced, I guess since Toy Story just launched to the top of the lexicon, they got the rights to Barbie, and incorporating her into that was. Hilarious, especially at the end, mm-hmm. with, like I'm tour guide Barbie, and she's like waving and smiling, and then she oh. she ultimately goes, "Are they gone? Are they?" And then just falls apart. Like, oh my gosh, my I have made, hurts. I have made that joke since 1999. <laughs> right. Goodbye now. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Are they, Are gone? they gone? I'm gonna murder someone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Are they gone? Um, I've, okay, now, like Star Trek First Contact for you, I have seen Toy Story 2, but I can honestly say I probably haven't seen it from 2000, like, since the 2000s. Like, oh, no, it has been. It, and I hadn't seen it until my two year old became obsessed with Hoodie Buzz. Like, she's obsessed. Like, we, I don't know if this is TMI or not, but we got her um, big girl panties, and they have Woody and Buzz on them. And she she makes Woody and Buzz happy if she doesn't pee on them. (laughs) And that's the only, (laughs) we are in the throes of potty training right now, and, I mean, you try everything. Because I am just I, I I will show this episode. I will play this episode to her from when she is a teenager. Oh, just, uh, absolutely. Um, but we are um, we are in the throes of it. So I have watched Toy Story one, two, three and four probably 15 times in the past six months <laughs> each because she's that's like, oh, watch you put here. But and so each the what what I have settled into having a toddler who wants to watch the same things over and over and over again is I pick them apart. I try to find new things. I try to find interesting Easter eggs. That's fair. Like I act like I'm a member of new rock scholars and I am hunting for those Easter eggs (laughs) to make my Eric Voss video. Um, But just all of it, it was um, like Al's toy barn was mentioned in the first movie and for them mm-hmm. to expand that character and have that be a setting for the second movie was just it's just genius. I mean, it, uh, Pixar, I would say it's world building nine Pixar. I say 95 percent of the time they hit it out of the park mm-hmm. and every single Toy Story movie was no exception. Like m- one of my reluctance 
to go back to have gone back and watched Toy Story 2 in particular is that Sarah McLaughlin song. When she loved me. It's. I mean, every time I watch it, it's still like. I mean, it's they have not overlapped that song over top of a um, like Save the Pets commercial. Thank you. Like this one, this one is it's. It's good. I I would go back. They're all on Disney Plus. I know you have Disney Plus. I would go back and watch them all again. Have you seen four? Um, I yes, I have seen four. I haven't like like I've seen like I walked into four having not seen three since I saw three in the theaters. Oh, because because I saw three in the theaters between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. I oh, was not going to see three no. again. Oh, no. I was not going to see three again. I just, it would just break me. It would just break me as a person. <laughs> and so, and so it was just like, no, gosh, no. Like when they're all like going down the, down the volcano of garbage. Oh, it's just that's... like. Uh, down the volcano the incinerator at the dump it wasn't a volcano (laughs) (laughs) well for the toys it was a volcano it was a volcano yeah so yeah that's my i I couldn't think of the word as incinerator that that's well there's lots of orange and fire so i can see how you get confused but that's my number three toy story two yes well good choice good choice um me and my girlfriend and we've talked about this and she has agreed um she will be coming on for the Disney show. Okay, yay. Because me and my girlfriend are going to do me and my girlfriend have been going through the Disney animated films in like cut in sequential order from okay. time of release. Starting with Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, ending with either Frozen 2 or whatever's next. After gotcha. Frozen okay. 2. And so we are currently in the 50s. Um, we just finished Lady and the Tramp. Oh, um, we're yeah, I think next to Sleeping Beauty. And then the after that is one hundred and one Dalmatians. Yes. We need to debrief yes. after you watch that one again. Yes. Yes. And so Christ. we're going through them all. And then we're going to after we get done with Frozen 2, we're going through Pixar. Oh, it's only going to get better yeah. from there. Well, we're 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 debating whether or not to do Pixar like interwoven with like once we hit 1995. Just um, literally go in sequences as, as they come out. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. because those mid two thousands, we might need some Pixar for those mid two thousands Disney films. Agreed. Just to <laughs> just to keep things interesting, we don't want another nineteen forties incident. Because well, I'm I'm really dying to hear your number two, um, and not because number two, been, not because we've been going for almost two hours, but because um, I'm I'm interested to see if we have any overlap. Okay. It, we won't for this one. Okay. Number two, Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. Okay. Okay. You've seen Superman 2, correct? I have seen Superman 2, yes. Not the Richard Donner cut, probably no. not. No, I okay. haven't. So I will give respect to the Richard Lester Superman 2, everything that was done with that. But, you know... I think we said this in the last episode, but there is a reason why Kevin Feige says Kevin Feige sits down with all of his directors and say, watch Superman, the movie, 
this is how it's done. The formula created by these movies. Like, the formula for the modern superhero era was created by these movies. And so, they... By formula, you mean, like, for origin story, for character growth, for... Origin story, character growth, coming to your own, the heart, the heart behind these superhero movies. Yeah. is just so good. So good. And so, we... I watch them and yes, there's a lot of it that's dated. There's a lot of it that, you know, doesn't hold up in the modern context, but there's, there's a heart to it that I would, I could rip a few of those scenes that just place them into the modern context. And I could say Marvel could have made this. Um, okay. Wonder woman was a love letter to the Superman movies. Terry Jenkins even and, said um, that, didn't he? D- didn't she? Yeah. There's some scenes that are direct homages. Gotcha. Like okay. when she's in when she's in London and she like deflects those bullets. That's a direct homage to a scene in Superman the movie. Okay, no, I have a question. Um, so, which Superman? Which one? Richard Donner cut. The Richard Superman two. The Richard Donner cut. Two. Okay. Um, I've seen Superman. So two. we've talked about what is different from the original so, theatrical release to the Donner cut. So, um, in this one. There, so what happened with the Superman movies is that the movies went over budget tremendously, mostly due to studio interference here. Richard Donner took, so the, the producers that were making, that were working on these movies, they, they gave the script to Richard Donner, and it was so bad that Richard Donner felt a duty to take the movie to save Superman. Oh. Like, <laughs> Yes. He felt a duty to the character to take this movie. Holy cow. Okay. It was so bad. And once Richard Donner left, Superman four happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's where they were taking that. That's where they were taking it. And so, you know, in, in this, and so what happened was, was that Superman two, like the budget went out of control. They Donner had a falling out with the producers. And so they brought him in to finish the movie and to add some cuts that were more in line with the Lester vision, the, the Salkrans, I think are their names, their vision for the Superman series, more in line with their original script. Because originally the first movie was supposed to be a one, three hour epic. And that was just to be it. They had to split the, they split it into two movies um, that's why General Zod goes into the Phantom Zone at the beginning of the first movie, but you don't see him until the second movie. Yeah. Ooh, oh, the original yeah, that's, that's interesting. Okay. And so in this one, there was a lot of... So after this news came out and the internet was created, <laughs> there was a lot of discussions of what was the Richard Donner cut let like? And about... 80% of what the movie is, the original movie is, is the original cut. But apparently, like, when Richard Donner got fired, Hugh, uh, not Hugh, ja- not Hugh Jackman, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Lex Luthor. Greatest criminal master. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. <laughs> Gene Hackman. I, get, I was like, how on earth are you in, like, in, inflecting Hugh Jackman into this? But Gene Hackman, I can, I can see it. I can see how you get confused. Um, 
Yeah, greatest criminal mastermind of all time. And they had enough test footage of like the original script, like the script that Superman 2 they wanted to do, that they were able to interweave test footage and stuff in to be able to done. One big change was there was a there was a scene in Niagara Falls. Um, and in the Lester cut, Lois discovers that Clark is Superman because he acts because Clark accidentally burns his hand in the fire. And obviously he's Superman. He doesn't actually get burned. Uh, okay. In the Richard Donner cut, Lois straights up shoots him. <laughs> what if she was <laughs> she wrong? Was, it was a blank. It was a blank. And so she has a gun pointed it at Clark. The gun fires and he goes, he takes off the glasses, goes into Superman. He's like, what if I wasn't? And then she goes, it was a blank. (laughs) I love that. I feel like that's something when you mention like Feige saying this is the formula. I feel like that's something that Pepper would have done to Tony Stark. Uh huh. Uh huh. Just that like. (laughs) I'm not I'm not going to say I don't want this to sound like super sexual or anything, but like intense chemistry. And oh, yeah. Intense in the way that it's there's just kind of this reckless abandon in how much that they fight, but would fight for each other in some of these movies. But, and I feel like you see that in, in other characters as well. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Like especially Hawkeye and, and Natasha Romanoff when they're on Nita Valir. Um, that's anyways. We'll get to that one in the Marvel there, show. There is, there there is so much like Marlon Brando. There's actually extra scenes with Marlon Brando. That in that's, this movie that wh- that's just gold to begin with. Yeah, there's Especially extra with scenes Brando. with Marlon Brando because like Marlon Brando basically like forbade using any more footage from him after they had this falling out with the Salkrons. <laughs> because Marlon Brando has that power. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, like everyone was too scared to tell Marlon Brando that he was uh, mispronouncing Krypton in those movies. He kept calling it Krypton. <laughs> and <laughs> and so like Jane Hackman like stepped off stage and there's just there's so much heart to it. And I tell you what, Terrence Stamp as General Zod like it's just the perfect campy villain kneel kneel before my son of Jarrell, both you and then one day your ass and i will tell you this the greatest scene in my opinion until some scenes in marvel that we will talk about <laughs> was uh was whenever uh chris reeves you know, everyone thinks he's lost his powers. Everyone thinks he's useless. And then he crushes General Zod's hand. And we find out that they actually lost their powers. And you just hear the. And I like it's just a stand up and cheer moment. <laughs> and say what you will about Man of Steel killing General Zod. But in those movies, he chucks General Zod down an endless chasm and. You know, with a smile on his face to begin with. He knew what he was doing. 
he knew what he was doing. Um, and that is my number two, Superman two, the Richard Donner cut. I'm probably going to watch it after we get done here because I've just now worked myself up. <laughs> Perfect. All righty. My number two, we have kind of talked about this offline, if you will, in real life. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know that you disagree with. So I know that this is not okay. going to be an overlap. It is Thor Ragnarok. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I can hear your disdain already. Um, it's <laughs> okay. I don't hate the movie. Before you chuck your phone out the windows, everybody. Well, why don't I you? Don't why don't you? Movie. T- why, why don't you tell? Uh, go into why it was a negative departure for you. We'll call it that. Okay. So, Kenneth Branagh's first Thor film. When. That was a sword and sandal fantasy in space with a Marvel twist to it. Like there was this sort of like this Game of Thrones as King Arthur, you know, with dragons and, you know, Viking mythology and Norse legends that I loved the place of Asgard. I loved the place of Asgard. Now, what was the theme of Thor Ragnarok? (laughs) Asgard is not a people, not a place. And so Asgard is a people, not a place. Yes, I get it. But one thing you'll know about me, I have this weird fascination with the flat earth conspiracy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And technically Asgard was a flat earth. You are not wrong. <laughs> Asgard was a flat Earth, and so oh, don't tell me that's the reason why you like the original Thor. No, <laughs> no, no. I I loved the place, and I have this fondness for Thor too. I know why everyone doesn't like it. I get it, but there's just this. I I liked the twist because if there's one thing about Marvel, and we'll go into much more detail on the Marvel show. But if there's one thing about Marvel that I, I would say don't like is when they stick strictly to the Marvel formula, I kind of lose a little bit of interest Mm -hmm. when it is, when it is just the quips, the jokes, the let's fight the overly CGI villain. And let's just be quippy and snarky with everybody. I kind of. Okay, so so that's that's interesting to me, because when you said when they stick to the Marvel formula, it falls flat for me. The original Thor and Thor two stuck to the original formula. And they fell flat and Thor and Thor Ragnarok marked a. But like a huge departure from that formula. And I to it's I loved everything that it signified. Mm-hmm. It signified that Marvel is willing to take a risk. They're willing to put unconventional directors at the helm of these hundreds of millions of dollar budget movies. Yes. And my uh, wife and I are huge Taika Waititi fans, the director of Thor Ragnarok. Um, he also played Korg in the movie, The Rockman. 
Um, that was the director. Mm-hmm. Um, but his mm-hmm. his comedy and his timing in the movies, he's 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 known for comedies that also have a pretty significant emotional punch to them. Um, almost borderlines on the absurd, but it's like it's not full unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt absurd. Yeah, it's like if Kimmy Schmidt <laughs> had a lot of heart and could tell really compelling stories. <laughs> not that that wasn't a compelling story, but that was just an exercise in the absurd. It's mm-hmm. um, he directed what we do in the shadows. Um, he directed the hunt for the wilder people, which is a phenomenal movie. Uh, he directed jo- mm-hmm. most recently directed Jojo Rabbit, um, which we have in our queue. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard great things about it. But y- you've he ushered in this new era for Marvel movies, which honestly I think they needed because that Marvel formula they they were re- like lathering, rinsing, and repeating that Marvel formula, and it was getting stale. Yeah, I like I remember walking out of Doctor Strange going. Uh, Tony Stark became a wizard. Like it was great special effects in Doctor Strange, but it didn't wow me. However, giving him that God complex that Tony Stark also carries around made for some interesting dialogue when the two of them were like butting heads. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember walking out of there going, oh, gosh, when those two meet. (laughs) Right. But this is this is like Marvel trusts their directors. Um, they do, but I, I don't. They th- do. They that trust doesn't need to be built because they bring in directors that have good track records, uh, and they're also I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like Ryan Coogler, Black Panther. Like, there's a reason why that movie was up for Best Picture. It was. It because was because the the movie but, that he uh, he directed before that was Creed, which was widely critically acclaimed. Um, I oh, just, yes. I just loved, I loved the humor in it. I know that you were desperately hoping that the Thor series would be Lord of the Rings in space. Basically, yeah, that's basically what I was looking for, because I think that first Kenneth Branagh movie was just beautiful. Oh, I do too. Like it's beautifully, I it's beautifully shot. Um, Anthony Hopkins as yeah, Anthony Hopkins as Odin was just spot on. Inspired. I, think I said I wanted him to. I think I wanted him to be Zeus in the uh, Hercules live action remake <laughs> and, you know, typecasting here. But at the end of Thor 2, I was so intrigued by Loki being Odin. And I was expecting this grand sort of like, maybe this was just too much, too much to expect. Uh. Like an Asgardian rebellion where Thor basically has to, you know, oust oust Loki, you know, bring him down from the outside while everyone thinks he's Odin. Kind of kind of a political thriller, if you will. A little bit. Yeah, a, a little bit. Everyone thinks he's Odin. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Thinks- the, the God of Mischief is now the acting king of Asgard. Like the I wanted more from that. There's a lot of pot- potential there for story and and. It's while it was funny, um, I it, like him being ousted as Loki happened within the first like 10 minutes of the movie. And it did. It did. And I like that. That was where my imagination went. And then where they took it was sort of like Guardians in because another hot take here. 
Guardians is my least favorite franchise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm leaving. Um, I'm leaving. You can pick up the tab. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm because no. Guardians Guardians feels to me like the the Marvel formula and nothing more. It, it, it feels to me as the Marvel formula and nothing more quips, you know, it quips plus exposition <laughs> without depth. Like it, with, without without that sort of depth, that without that little sort of nuance that a Black Panther has. Like, but does every Black does Pan- every movie need to be a Black Panther caliber? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. For me, I walked into Guardians going, it was so hyped up. It was so hyped up that I when I finally saw Guardians, I was like, okay, that was fun. All right, <laughs> because it was so hyped up to me, it was almost ruined because everyone had hyped it up. Had, had, you, it up had so you had you watched and really fallen in love with Parks and Rec by that point when you went to see Guardians? I had not. I had not. I think, and so and I, think I don't think like I didn't have. Andy Dwyer, I, I didn't experience the Chris Pratt becoming hot effect. Well, I mean, it's like, not necessarily like him, but it's like someone who's known for kind of slapsticky comedy now being the head. Mm-hmm. Like, how are they going to pull this off? And uh, like uh, Parks and Rec has a rabid fan base, which I could count myself as yes, one of does. them. Um, I'd say I think that's like he delivered. And I think that's what helped to drive that movie. Um, but I. There was a reason why one of my endgame predictions was was that Thor was going to join the Guardians of the Galaxy because it just felt like a Guardians movie. Thor Ragnarok did. And I Thor Ragnarok just felt like a Guardians movie to me. Now, with that being said, Kate Blanchett is hella. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Excellent. Go. Go. Like <laughs> talk. I mean, where do you go? When you're at the top of the mountain, the only place you can go is down. <laughs> Inspired choice. Inspired choice. And and I think that you're going to get those caliper. I think every actor like kind of accepts that at some point they're going to be in a Marvel movie. Yes. I mean, outside of like Martin Scorsese cameoing in a Marvel movie. Because he's made his opinions <laughs> very clear. Um, I think every actor has accepted that and maybe have even had talks. Kate Blanchett is one that I did not see coming. And when I heard that she was going to be the primary villain, I was sold. Yeah, that that bit too. of information had me to too. And she chewed the scenery. She was not the problem with that movie. No. <laughs> she was the problem. Not at that. all. Like... Of all of the one note, you know, destroy, enslave, oppress, world domination villains <laughs> yeah. that Marvel has, Kate Blanchett is my favorite. Yes. She has absolutely. she's my favorite the she's my favorite one note Marvel villain. Yeah. Uh, so we can we can we can delightfully agree to disagree uh on this movie. Yes. But it was one of my favorites. Um, I laughed the hardest. It had like I really felt like Thor I mean, of course, it was a plot line in the movie, but he earned you needed Ragnarok to appreciate the gravity of him, like arriving at Wakanda. To fight Mm -hmm. the the surge of Thanos's army. Oh, oh. 
what it did for Thor's character. Perfect. Perfect. Like, I, I it, it's a good movie. It, it's a good movie. And what it did for Thor's what it did for Thor's character was perfect. Kate Blanchett was perfect. I, I needed a bit more connective tissues with the other two. Like that, that's ultimately what I needed was just more connective tissues. You know, Jeff Goldblum basically at his house doing <laughs> Jeff Goldblum things. <laughs> uh, like, uh, like I, just, I just picture that's what he does. That's like, what, I think they just did the documentary film that he he has <laughs> the little like stereotypical laser stick, you know, with the ball on the end and the disc getting progressively mm-hmm. larger that he can tap people and incinerate them. And he just like shivers with joy when it happens that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just how I see Jeff Goldblum living his life. <laughs> right. All right. Let's go to let's go to number one. I'm I'm I All have right. no idea what your number one pick is. And I'm I, I have. OK, I have some guesses, but I'm not going to throw them out there. Go ahead. When you said political thriller. It, it was the perfect segue. Captain America, Winter Soldier. Okay, so that that is actually one that's on my list. Not my number one, but okay. it, it is one that was on my list. Captain America Winter Soldier in a post-endgame world remains my favorite Marvel movie. Wow. It remains my number one Marvel movie. Captain America Winter Soldier solidified the Captain America character, in my opinion. I if um, if it hadn't been for the Russo brothers in and that movie, I I don't know what they would have done with Captain America. Like, so the problem with Captain America, I'm going to get just a tiny bit political. OK, is that. How do you sell America to a global audience? How do you sell a character that is literally the flag is literally a part of his uniform <laughs> yeah. to a global audience who represents the ideal of America? And in the first two Captain America movies in the in the first two Captain America movies, they they it, perfect. They just did it perfectly because they kept him in World War Two for that first one where everyone agrees. Yes, it is appropriate to rah rah for America. Because we were liter- it was the last literally war. fighting Nazis. We are literally fighting Nazis. And then in an age where people distrust their governments, one political party distrust. I'm going to be completely like bipartisan here. One political party distrust want the other party when they're in power. The other political party distrust the other political party when they're in power. OK. And with a lot of concerns about domestic surveillance and a lot of concerns about encroaching civil liberties due to the, you know, technological police state that's been developed, that's been developing. What do you do is that you take those of that anxiety of America's foreign policy and set the ideal of America against him. And you set the ideal of America against them that says, yes, I am not a shill for my government. I am not a shill for 
the United States. I'm not a shill for American policy, no matter what. I am not a mindless government drone. I will fight for what I believe in. When he gives his speech, the price of freedom is high and it is a price that I am willing to pay. Like, I, I, I'm just like, yes, Captain. Yes, Captain. I'm pretty sure you just got chills <laughs> now saying that. I did. I really did. I really did. <laughs> and so now. It, there's one flaw. There's not enough Captain America, Alan Silvestri March. And oh, human Winter scores. <laughs> there's just one. That's just my one flaw. Um, and so it's a political thriller. It, it showed to me what what Marvel could be the way Thor Ragnarok did for you. It was a different story. It was they shook up the formula. There was depth. There was a depth to it that wasn't there in the past. Yeah. And so and then and I, I, I just want to I just want to tell the world this. <laughs> when. Peggy Peggy Carter and I saw it in 2014 and Peggy Carter was sitting there dying with dementia and Cap was just with her and you just see the loss of never getting that dance it was from that point on in 2014 <laughs> where I'm like dang it Marvel do some time travel give that man his dance dang it <laughs> So I've, I've got six. to be honest. I, I have to be very incredibly honest with you. Sitting next to you in Avengers Endgame <laughs> was one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> like it, f- feeling you f- full body sob. Like <laughs> literally like rocking the row of seats that we were on when Steve Rogers got the dance with Peggy Carter. I, I'd been here. I, I can vouch 100%. I can vouch for his prediction of, well, not prediction, but more of like desperate wish of bringing time travel into the Marvel, somehow sending him back to get that dance. Like you've been talking about that for years. And when it was happening, I, I, I was almost, I was watching you almost as much as I was watching the screen. Just <laughs> I it was it was a it was a brilliant payoff and I'm yeah it's so it, Winter Soldier was on my list. Winter Soldier like and they brilliantly brought back the Nazis as the villain here. Mm-hmm. They brilliantly but they brilliantly brought back the Nazis. And that's how they because the US government to use their toys and to use their stuff for movie making, they can't actually criticize the US government. Mm. And so the way they got around that rule is by having a international government agency being infiltrated by Nazis. <laughs> right. Gotcha. <laughs> and it just like I and I remember walking out of that movie going, that was good. That was really good. It grows on you. And then it just it was the more that I thought about it, because it was so it was 2014. Um, the movies between the first Avengers movie, because that Avengers high from that first Avengers movie was just <laughs> I will never forget the Avengers high. 
that oh, I saw. No, like I, <laughs> after, the, after that, first I, one. I determined after that movie that that was going to be the theme of your groomsman gifts. Like I incorporated yes. the Avengers into my <laughs> wedding. I loved that movie so much. Mm-hmm. And the only movie that I saw in theaters of Phase One before Avengers was Captain America One. Mm. That was the only one that I saw in theaters. Okay. Uh, then I saw Avengers. I missed Iron Man three, which good reason. Uh, uh, I don't think you missed much. <laughs> I missed Iron Man three, but from Thor: The Dark World on, I have seen all of them. Yep. In theaters, from Thor: The Dark World on, I've seen all of them. And so after Avengers, there's Iron Man three, Thor: The Dark World, and then Captain America: Winter Soldier. So I was kind of going in looking for that Avengers high, and I know it's unfair. But the more that I just thought about it, the more that I chewed on it and just the brilliance of that movie. Yeah. By taking but it it was the perfect way to bring that character into the 21st century. Which just to bring him in and then set him apart and that set him apart from the American government because the whole world has a bit of an issue with the American government. Yeah. And so I loved that movie. It, it, it's that Marvel movie where they still had the, the quips, but they also had the depth. Mm-hmm. Um, my number two, like solo Marvel film is Black Panther for that same reason. For, th- for that same reason. And so loved Captain America Winter Soldier. Up until I think it is at the very least the, the best superhero sequel ever made. I would agree. The best superhero. No, I would agree. Yeah, the best superhero sequel ever made and i'm putting it above dark knight i'm putting it up above i would have said superman 2 until 2014 <laughs> uh, and it just loved oh my goodness i okay I, i'm gonna be watching a lot of movies tonight um <laughs> uh, all right and what is your number one okay I, i'll give you a guess as to the franchise Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm currently uh, since this is an since this is an audible medium, this podcast has not been brought to you by Audible.com. Audible audio that t- that goes with you wherever you are. Um, okay, I'm gonna go in and, and trim this little part out when we do it. Okay. Um, and you say okay. when you say what is your number one? Um, so do you remember? Uh, well, you remember it was this conversation when we talked about how there are some things that have just there's pieces of franchises that just sit on a, a pedestal that they're the automatic number one response for any favorite best. So inside the Harry Potter series, I, you knew we were going here. Um, Deathly mm-hmm. Hallows, that like two part, I, I would call it movie event because literally every every actor in Britain was in those movies. Um, that kind of that has to sit as the exception, just because of the gravity of the quality of those movies. Uh, it, it's the Avengers level event. It is that it, it, it literally it's, is. It, it's unfair to other movies. Yeah. So whenever I'm picking, like, what's your favorite, like, Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter book, like, number seven, just, I, I, it's, it's the automatic number one for me. I know it's not for, for most people. It's the automatic number one for me. So it's automatically excluded, and then I rank one through six. Side, side note, 
I, I'm not the biggest fan of the movie. Love the book, but I'm not the biggest fan of the movie. I, but that's, I. We'll get into that in the Potter show. <laughs> My favorite sequel is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. When it comes to the movies, I'll allow it. I'll allow it because, and there's several reasons there. the The story, the the story, if just pulling it straight from the book, is one of the most compelling stories in the whole series. If I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like this movie specifically is when the actors really come into their own. You can tell that they they have started to improve their craft. And I feel like this is Daniel Radcliffe has even said that Order of the Phoenix is the only one he'll watch. Like it's the first one that he'll 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 watch himself. Oh, really? Because, and you can you can yeah, because, you can kind of tell. And, and I think this this movie sets the tone for the rest of them. And I know mm-hmm. that it was David Yates um, and he directed all of them. So obviously there's going to be similarities. But when I think of Potter, I think of that, those movies on the world feels okay. it, I, I it's almost I don't even know how to describe this. Like you could see it forming in the first movies. It feels f- like fully developed in these movies. I can I can agree with that. You you don't like I, I think of the books and usually in those early books, there's like in the first couple of chapters, she's kind of recapping. Yeah. The rest of the, the recapping, the rest of the books. And then she slowly starts to drop that by by book four, book five. Yeah, no, I would agree to kind of keep get people get people up to see. So I can definitely see that. Um, I said for a long time that Order of the Phoenix is my fate was my favorite movie for for the for the longest period of time mainly because of that uh Dumbledore Voldemort fight. Oh my gosh. That that's that's <laughs> that's the cherry on the sunday of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's the best fight in I think it's the best fight in the franchise. Oh, in the whole thing. Because it, yeah. and I and I think it's it's that much more intense because there's no score. Oh, yes. Oh, and yes. you there are certain moments where scores are not needed. It, well, just because you feel like you you were dropped right down in the midst of it. Like you mm-hmm. would not hear these swelling orchestral arrangements if you were right in the middle of some sort of battle like that. There's no score. Mm-hmm. And it's the first glimpse. I know you and I have talked about this before. Um, I, I think Richard Harris's like uh, sage, whimsical version of Dumbledore in the first two movies was perfect because that's how yes. he was portrayed, but it needed to switch to Michael Gambon was the, for the action roles that Dumbledore had to perform. Michael, Michael Gambon was perfect. Say what you will about him. Did you put your name on the goblet of fire? When he goes barreling in, because <laughs> he loses, he definitely loses his warmth. Um, in those, it definitely loses. I think he doubled or warmth gains his warmth as it progresses. He does. Uh, he does. That's I mean, that was a stylistic choice on his part. I think I, I, I did see an interview about that, but it, in the book, it very says Dumbledore asked calmly. 
He doesn't, Mm -hmm. but his, when he is in the cave and he's having to drink the potion to get the, the Horcrux, like it, it, the, the caliper of these movies just continued to jump. But the, the, that tone was set in motion with order of the Phoenix. It has some of my, and I think that even like the wizarding world has acknowledged that there was something great about that. Because if you, or if you're inside of Diagon Alley or you're inside of Hogsmeade, the score that's playing, uh, you'll hear um, uh, Umbridge's March. Uh, you'll hear mm-hmm. the Dumbledore's Army theme. Uh, you'll hear Fred and George's escape whenever they set off the fireworks during the OWLs. Oh, yeah, that's a great score. The, um, the like it has some of the most recognizable Harry Potter music outside of Hedwig's theme. Like that's. John Williams again that just kind of transcends yeah um it has some of the most yes. recognizable music the acting was superb there's still a youthfulness to it the fight between Dumbledore and Lord Voldemort I am cautiously optimistic no, I'm not cautiously optimistic I'm optimistic about the fight between Dumbledore and Grindelwald and I hope it hits some of the same beats I do too I do too um I oh gosh, Jude Law is despite the Ewan McGregor style aging concerns mm-hmm. that uh, Jude <laughs> right. Law's casting portrays. <laughs> Which I mean, Dumbledore ages a a lot in twenty years. He he does, but mm-hmm. with I mean, with these delays, like Fantastic Beast three was delayed, as was all of the rest of the world for the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. It's. He may like uh, these movies are set to span um, 16, 17 years, 19 years, because Dumbledore took down Grindelwald in 45. And the first movie was in 26. 19 19 must be like J.K. Rowling's favorite number. Right. 19 years later. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, Order of the Phoenix. So. I. I have only one issue with all of the movies past two. Okay. I have one issue with all of the movies past two. We have talked about this before on off screen, Bill. Yes. The the lighting. I just. I it always just feels like it's raining. <laughs> in the Harry Potter universe, even when it's sunny, it always feels like it's agreed. Raining. But. Half-Blood Prince won an Oscar for cinematography. I agreed. Yes. Yes. This is me. This is my yeah. weird foible. Yeah. <laughs> Good so, word. Foible. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> and so five. I will give an exception, though, for five, because five is the darkest movie. Thematically, except I for maybe say. seven. Yeah. S- Seven, but in terms of like emotional term, there's less emotional turmoil in seven than there is in five. Seven, you're on a mission, but five, like Harry is like emotionally and traumatized. I mean, he's the picture of PTSD. He is the picture of PTSD. And so I think it's darker in that respect, whereas seven, it's like. Hitler is atta- you would obviously be a little you would obviously be terrified for your life if Hitler is attacking you but real life Hitlers don't normally attack you 
<laughs> or don't don't normally attack I'd you. Always, so, I'd always said, like, I, I read the first Harry Potter book when I was 11. I have a scar in my head. I've got mm-hmm. green eyes, unkempt hair, glasses. I I am Harry Potter, except for the fact that I have you both are. of my parents and I'm not being pursued by a homicidal maniac. Exactly. Other than that, it's basically exactly. the same. I mean, I have both of my parents, like, I, I have blonde hair, blue eyes. I have both of my parents... And then ultimate and these days, the political situation has descended to the point to where I want to go on a deserted island and drink green milk and just tell everybody to bug <laughs> off. I'm Luke Skywalker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes, you are. I even I've even been rocking the Luke Skywalker goatee. Um, but. Ultimately, like with five. I, I'm going to let you just go monologue on Dolores Umbridge. Monologue on Dolores Umbridge. Um, she, what makes her such a good villain? She is the like walking human equivalent of dragging your fingernails on a chalkboard. <laughs> Like you get the same feeling watching her on screen like that, like, I think I'm going to puke, but I simultaneously want to punch something that watching her in Imelda Staunton and her performance as Dolores Umbridge. Oh, I can't wait for her performance as Queen Elizabeth. That's like, going to she... that's yeah, that's going to be I think they're going to end the crown with her. Oh, like, I think after season five, it's going to be over. But um, it's I would even say that Voldemort had depth. Like there was he was conceived under a love potion. He knows he cannot feel love. And that is as an that is such an interesting driver of why he descended into madness. Dolores Umbridge was like just pure evil. She, she is cruel and enjoys it. Yes. there. The, she is cruel and she enjoys it. And it is an evil we could all relate to. It's an it's an evil we could all relate to and unanimously get behind that it needs to be brought down. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Like, are you even I mean, I, a, a villain that you can kind of relate to? I think are the more compelling ones. Like when Voldemort was killed, especially in the movie, you sensed his desperation. Like he was losing the things that he valued. We won't say love, but when, when Umbridge was carried off by the centaurs, that's like fists straight up in the air. You're like high fiving and buying another round. Like, I think a good fairy tale, in a good story has both. They have one villain that is relatable that you kind of understand their motivations. You can like relate to them, feel sympathetic towards. So, and you know, Voldemort was one. I would call Bellatrix Lestrange as pure evil. Yes. Um, The Malfoys were just blinded by hate, but then you start to kind of unravel them. Um, in Star Wars, Vader is definitely the sympathetic villain. Mm-hmm. Just blinded by, you know, he lost all hope and just descended into madness. 
and then you also have to contrast it with the pure evil character. So like, because ultimately Palpatine you have to is the umbridge it. of Star Wars. Palpatine is definitely the umbridge <laughs> of Star Wars. There is nothing redeeming about Palpatine. And it's just he's just fun to hate. You need to understand because in a good story, you need the you need good versus evil, but you need to be also reminded why evil is evil. Yeah. And you need to have that anchor as to why they're evil, because, you know, stories like today, it's one reason why I can't really get into Breaking Bad is that. I don't want to sympathize with someone descending into villainy that much. Yeah. I don't want to start to root for somebody. I need an anchor like in my story, I need it. Yes, have a sympathetic villain, explore that psychology. But at the end of the day, I still stand up and cheer both times Palpatine gets gets down. (laughs) Right. And explodes. And (laughs) when Umbridge gets off with the centaurs, when Umbridge goes off on the centaurs, I'm just like, yeah, you deserve that, you dingling. And and when she's like, tell them I mean no harm. And Harry goes, I'm sorry, Professor. I must not tell lies. Can't we all just agree that Harry has just an unbelievable capacity for burns? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> for sick uh, burns. Well, I guess in, in true fashion, I, I looped it back around to Harry Potter. But that one, if you were to ask me favorite sequel, go like that pops in my head first time every time um i said for a long time that order of the phoenix is my favorite but i think as an adult i've I've, i'm starting to appreciate the sorcerer's stone a lot more i can i can see that i can see that but um good grief we have talked for so long this is this is what happens when we get together um can can, can we agree that the best thing for our relationship not to pull back the curtain too much was when we moved away from each other (laughs) Yes. yes. Not to have a little like brother therapy here, but I, it, there was there was headbutting when we but it's we would. There was a period there where you were home from college for like two weeks. Yeah, I know. And, and you were ready for me to leave by the end of it. I I just wanted to kick you out the door. <laughs> like, But we would have we would have little bursts, a little little bursts of like like just giggle fits where we would sit and we would talk yes. about and we would quip and we would like reminisce on things that we love and talk about usually new about one th- one thirty in the morning over a Mono- monopoly board <laughs> right and it's <laughs> like when we moved apart it's like that condensed and concentrated and when we get on the phone uh-huh. or when we meet up in person it's just it will glance up and three hours later it's like oh gosh oh, yeah. okay i gotta go to bed <laughs> Yes, yes. But and hey. so I, I like, I like this, I like the show. I think, I think we we're we're kind of hitting on to something here. I I do too. I could sit and talk about Harry Potter for hours on end, but what we were doing before felt uh, didn't feel original, didn't feel forced, and I love where this is going. But on that note, yeah, I'm gonna head out. Uh, you be careful, um, and be careful, like. You're, Anyway, <laughs> um, and I'll I'll see you in the next one. And I think in the next one's going to be fun because we've got uh, I think we've got some people joining us. We have guests. Yes. And we'll, uh, yes. it's they're two uh, longtime friends of ours. And um, 
I'm very excited, especially for the topic. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. So on that note, I'm going to head out. Indeed. All right. All right see you. Later. Into.